0: Using a proprietary formulation technology platform called Aristat, the biopharmaceutical company Aracor is working with big biopharmas to deliver enhanced reformulations of their therapies, in essence, taking approved medicines and making them better. Its portfolio of products leads with diabetes, where its clinical stage, ultra-fast-acting insulin candidates AT247 and AT278 are seeking to change the treatment paradigm in an indication that hasn't seen much treatment paradigm change in a long, long time. Ericor's CEO and my guest on today's show is Dr. Sarah Howell, who brought drug development experience from big pharma, including GSK, UCB Pharma, and BTG, along with her when she joined the company in 2011. Dr. Howell, welcome to the business of biotech. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. Uh, so I want to get started, uh, with some, some background, uh, on, on you and the company before we get into what's going on today. Um, you joined the company quite a while ago. I think it's been like 11 years, I think since you, have you been there? 11 years. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah. And you joined as COO, uh, and then, uh, a little while later, not, not too far later, not, not too long later, but a little while later, you assume the CEO role. We'll get into that transition. But tell us a little bit about the company when you joined it. It was young. Um, it was a young company, uh, just 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 founded a couple of years prior, I think.
1: Yeah, that's right. So AraCor was founded um, back in 2007. Actually, it was an interesting journey in itself. It um, was originally a spin out of Unilever and um, into a company called Incense, and they were developing a wound dressing for diabetic um, leg ulcers, actually. And mm-hmm. the chief scientific officer, now Jan Jezik, at the time was a, a fairly young, you know, wouldn't mind me saying that, I hope, scientist at that time, and, and really set about trying to um, solve a problem in that these um, wound dressings used in the field by nurses, but they weren't stable, um, at room temperature so that caused a, a problem with the the treatment and use of these wound dressings so that was a problem that um, Jan solved there perhaps in some unconventional ways at that time and then our cause really spun out on the question is this a one-off or could this be a technology or approach that could be more broadly used across um, a range of therapeutic products so, you know, between that time 2007 and when I joined in 2011, it was really very much a research focus, looking at exploring and developing the, these approaches and this formulation technology. So, when I joined, it was a fairly young company, um, very science driven, as you would expect, and really trying to explore the capabilities of the technology. Um, and without at that time, You know, really those um, plans in place, how to further develop or commercialize the technology, essentially. So that's the the company I joined, but to a certain extent what attracted me to the company, really, there was a real opportunity um, there to take this technology further and, and develop improved products using it.
0: Mm-hmm. what was the uh what what did the company look like from a, a personnel standpoint so I, I understand you know it it had some some big backing uh spinning out of unilever but did it did it look and act at the time like uh like a startup i mean was it you know skeleton skeleton crew kind of scrapping to to make things happen
1: yeah very much so i think it was you know at that size of company as well you've got you know everybody doing a bit of everything essentially so um, you know less defined roles in that way and much more academic probably in its look and feel to you know looking into the science not being too constrained by boundaries and you know and that's right at that phase of a, a company's development but of course you then need to prioritize and, and pick where you're going to focus your efforts and make sure you have the right skills and expertise to grow so that was really the point at, at which So, you know, there was a lot of very talented, hungry, motivated scientists. And I think, you know, it's really been around channeling that into the right direction. So everyone's pushing in the same direction and going after the same goal, essentially.
0: Yeah. Was, was diabetes uh, at the core of the, the vision, diabetes care at, at that time as well? Or was that sort of un, uh, t- TBD at, the, at, that, at that point?
1: Yeah, not at all, actually. So it was very much, you know, at the point, you know, when I joined and part of the reason for joining is that, you know, I did my due diligence and thought, actually, there's really something here. This technology could be quite special. But, you know, I've never heard of it and wondering why, given my background in large pharma as well, hadn't heard of this company or the technology before. And I think that was clear then. It was, it was around identifying where the technology could really be used to its most benefit to improve products and what patient populations do you have in mind. And even at that point, when I joined, I didn't have in mind diabetes then it was really, you know, coming in, understanding sweet spots, really, and where it worked best. And it was only really when I took over, as you mentioned earlier, as CEO in 2015, it was that point that we made we were making the decisions to pivot and start to develop some of our own products ourselves. So up until that point, it was very much partnership with um, pharmaceutical companies on their products, enhancing and improving their products, but no internal product
0: development um, at our core ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you, you know, you just mentioned, I mentioned from the outset that you, you worked at GSK and UCB and BTG. Those are some big companies you, and you did have, uh, I mean, you were, you had roles like head of, 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 of CMC, you know, vice president of of technical development, I believe. Um, So comfortable roles with, with comfortable companies. What was the, I guess, motivation for you personally, to decide to you know, walk away from big pharma and, and uh, I don't know, take a, take a gamble yeah. maybe, uh, take take on some risk with a, an emerging company.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the case. I mean, in a sense, it wasn't as huge a step as it looks. So I started at GSK, obviously, an enormous um, and successful pharmaceutical company, great place to start your career. It was my first um role there and and to really start to learn your trade and learn how the pharmaceutical industry itself you know works I mean I was quite fortunate there I was working on um, some antiviral products HIV products and I was put on a program at the time GSK um, had committed to an access to medicines program so that was really providing their antiviral and HIV medicines at cost to developing countries so I was put on um, this program as a sole chemist at that point. I was a PhD chemist to look at, could I improve the manufacturing process? Could I make it more efficient um, there? So to reduce the cost base, essentially. And it actually worked. So I ended up in this very fortunate position. It was complete luck, really, to a certain extent, where I was the expert then on this program and this process. So, whereas in a large pharma company, you're I don't think you're linked. giving
0: yourself. A, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there, Dr. <laughs> Howell. Complete luck. I don't. I don't believe that. But I'm. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go on. Well,
1: there's always an element of luck. So skill and luck, I think, a combination right. of the two. And and you know, it meant that I got to follow that all the way through to being an expert witness with the FDA, and all the way through to approval. Which ordinarily in a large pharma company, of course, there's departments full of people and experts that go and take over and you hand it over and it goes through the journey and and you start on the next programme so it was quite fortunate that I was the only you know chemist and only expert on this process so I got to see that going all the way through and that gave me a a bit of the bug to be honest of actually I quite like having this broader experience base and being able to work on a broader range of programmes and really learn as well myself. So. You know, after that um, product was approved and it's still used um, today, and that process I developed is still used commercially today um, to manufacture that uh, drug for patients. I decided to leave GSK actually because, you know, going back to what should have been my day job at that point, I thought actually I've I've had a taste of, of something broader. So I joined Celtec, mm-hmm. who were uh, a um, a chemistry and a biologics. Um, company again developing a broad range of therapies and they were acquired then by a larger company UCB so we became a mid sized pharma but that's you know gave me the opportunity again to work on a product that ultimately it was approved for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's and went through that whole process again so again being been fortunate through my career see a number of drugs that I've worked on make it to market. I mean, many people work 30, 40 years in this industry and unfortunately never see one of their um, medicines make it to market. So, you know, at that time, again, we, we it was a huge amount of work, huge experience and expertise getting this product to market. And um, then an opportunity came up at BTG, who at that time were a 70-person company and really looking Um, to become a fully integrated specialty pharma company. So it was a real opportunity for me to join a smaller company in a bigger role, obviously bring the experience that I had from GSK and UCB Tech to the table there and and really kind of hone my leadership skills. Mm -hmm. And BTG grew very much by M&A, so um, we acquired three companies um, whilst I was there and I was part of the M&A leadership team so that's where I, I cut more of my commercial teeth I guess so it gave me a I guess a unique blend of skills there from you know pharmaceutical product development and the science behind that but also um, you know commercial deal making essentially through M&A and in licensing um, products so you know, so that I still I love the science, I'm a scientist at heart, but actually bringing those products through development into market takes, you know, a significant amount of business and commercial acumen as well. So it's really that blend that when um, the opportunity error arose, I thought, actually, this is a company that's got great technology, some great science, but needs some guidance now on how to further develop and commercialize it. So that's, you know, Really was a good opportunity that um, fitted well at that time with my kind of experience and skill set.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, so when you when you took that COO role, um, you know, to your point, you had developed some chops around. You know, obviously development was in your wheelhouse from from the outset, uh, but then commercialization and kind of moving the ball downfield. Um, but, but the COO role, I'm sure, uh, brought with it some elements of, of the job that maybe you know, in your more development and project-specific work you, you hadn't, hadn't necessarily seen. So tell us a little bit about that. So like if you were, were going to share with you know, someone who is on a similar career path or someone who was in a development or very CMC-specific role and kind of wanted to work into that chief, chief operating officer um, position... What, what what do you look out for? Like, what have you learned? What did you encounter in, in your first role as CEO that perhaps, you know, wasn't in in the 10 ring or in, in the wheelhouse of what you had been doing for so long?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there in those roles, you've obviously got to um, make sure you're leading and that you're delivering to a certain extent through others and not you know looking to take hold of everything and do everything yourself because it's important if you want to grow a company of course that you have a strong team around you and you know you support them and give them the tools that they need to um, deliver as well otherwise you become the bottleneck clearly so that's you know that's an important transition to make and not an easy one to make actually when you're used to you know, managing yourself and your own energy and time and delivering and being accountable for that delivery, then making sure that happens through other people is a different skill set. So you have to be careful there that you don't keep diving into the detail and disrupting to a certain extent, that delivery and that ecosystem. I think the thing that I've probably learned the most, that I didn't realize you needed to be a CEO, actually, is that, and something I didn't realize that, you know, I was inherently within me, is your attitude to risk. I think you've got to have a healthy attitude to risk. That doesn't mean that you're totally reckless and, you know, taking risks everywhere. But also, you know, you, you have got to take some risks to succeed and to grow. And I think you've got to be comfortable with that because quite frankly, if you're not, you'd never sleep at night, I think, mm. as a CEO, if you're worried about, you know, every decision that you've made where you don't have all of the information. And I think partly, you know, that's, attitude to risk and, and perhaps being comfortable with it grows with experience and expertise, because then you are drawing more on your past experiences and you can then make decisions a little bit more on gut feel than you would have done early in your career. But I but I think if you are a real worrier and, you know, you are very risk averse, I don't think the CEO role would be a good fit. And, and that's just something you know, I'd never heard anyone really speak about, and I didn't realize was so critical to survival. I think as a as a CEO.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 2015, you you transitioned to CEO at at Ericor. So four years in the CEO spot, uh, and then you transitioned to CEO. Tell us that story. How did that How did that come to pass?
1: Yeah, and that really was around this pivot for the company and to really move towards. So up until that point, we've been further developing the technology. There's certainly a development phase of developing this Aristat technology, we call it. So it's a formulation platform to partnering and building relationships with pharmaceutical companies and, and really starting to... Um, you know, have a baseline of our technology licensing model, and you know, working out the the value of the the technology and the value that's attributed to it to pharmaceutical companies. Essentially, so there was a, a huge amount of change in that time. But then I think you know, for me, we'd got to a stage where we could routinely deliver enhanced versions of our partners' products, or and these are the largest, some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world that we were working with and still working with today. So it really was a question of, okay. so we know we can do this. We know that the technology can do this. Why don't we select some products where there's a real patient need and there's a good fit with the technology and start developing some of these products ourselves, which, of course, means that we can take them, you know, control them in a sense and take them to patients, take them closer to market. And of course, as a company, then retain more of the value and build value into the business. And of course, with my background in pharmaceutical product development, really, that was a perfect time and fit for me to take over as CEO. I mean, in reality, it would have been a little bit earlier, but um, I had twins in 2013. So about halfway through that time between COO and and CEO, um, I was out of the business for a while.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. That's cool. That's a, that's a good, you know, a lot to juggle, but, uh, but, but very cool. Um, I'm going to bounce around a little bit here because I, so I have some, some perhaps naive questions about the, the actual, the, the business model, right. That, are, that, that Ericor is in. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask them, even though they may be, uh, you know, maybe, maybe naive questions, I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, cause I want to get a sense for, you know, how you go about, uh, doing deals and, 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 and choosing therapeutics that you're going to, you know, put, put in the Aerostop platform and, yeah. and, and enhance to put it very simply, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, let's say I make a widget, right? Like I, I, I run pillars widget company um, and along comes a company that says, you know, your, your widget's pretty cool, but it could be cooler. Um, we, we'd like to make it cooler. Uh, and I and and my you know maybe my initial reaction is a little bit defensive or or bristling like what do you mean <laughs> you know what I mean like what what's, what sort of risk am I going to give up if I give you the authority to make my widget cooler again I am uh, this is naive and I'm I'm oversimplifying it but kind of start at that point and and walk me through sort of the I, I don't know the 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 business philosophy at Aracor around you know it it its platform and what it intends to do to make existing treatments better, to enhance them.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'll probably split it into two halves, actually. So we um, we have our technology partnerships where we're partnering with um, leading pharmaceutical and biotech companies on their proprietary products. So they're either in development or on the market. And then we have our own selection process, if you like, and product development and products that we're taking forward. Um, you know the first wave of those being in the diabetes space. So perhaps starting with the technology partnerships there. I mean, the first is that we're completely agnostic then to therapeutic area. It doesn't matter what indication or um, that medicine is being developed for. Really, it's about what's how's this product going to be used by the patient or the healthcare provider. And is it currently in a format that um, is ideal? You know, is it the ideal fit for that patient population? So, for example, there might be a product that is um, in development by that pharmaceutical company, which um, needs to be delivered via a long intravenous administration within the hospital setting. And they may come to us and say, look, you know, we would like this to be self-injected by the patient at home. But currently, because of some challenges with being able to develop that format of this product, it's a large volume dilute solution. So it has to be via IV, which is pushing that patient into the hospital setting. And, you know, we see that in everyday life now. And, and, you know, for all of us individually, we want to stay out of hospital as much as we can. So, you know, that's where we can use the Aristat technology to develop a very highly concentrated Um, but stable um, product that can be then um, delivered via a single injection, via a syringe, by the patient themselves and bring them out of the hospital setting. Now, that pharma company only comes to us once they've tried to develop that themselves, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're a technology licensing model, so for those types of partnerships, a model tends to be milestone and royalty-bearing, so it's revenue-generating and, of course, you, know, you only want to give up royalties on your products if it's really bringing value to the table. So that's the key here is that the Aristat technology can develop these enhanced versions of products that are otherwise unachievable. And that would be one example, say an IV administration to um, subcutaneous self-administration at home. And then, you know, to, to give a different example, if we go to our diabetes products here, you know, we selected diabetes as a therapeutic area because there's still a huge patient need um, for that patient population. You know, there's um, 537 million people now unbelievably living with diabetes and, you know, their daily challenge is to try and control their blood glucose within a healthy range. And we identified this as a key area for us because it was it was clear there that there was still a need for better insulin. So for people with diabetes, if they need insulin, they'll inject insulin around mealtimes, for example, to bring their blood glucose back into a healthy target range. And there was still a need for much faster acting insulins to help them better manage their blood glucose and outcomes. And this was something on paper. And you know, at this stage it really is. This is about, you know, innovation then and, and science that we felt that. Our technology would be a good fit here, and we could use it to develop much faster acting insulins. So, you know, those were the first products that we started um, working on. And now we have um, clinical data proving that, that we have these superior, faster acting insulins, even against the gold standard insulins that are on the market today that have been developed by some of the largest pharma companies in the world. So, it very much starts with what's the patient need? what would improve this treatment and outcomes for patients and then tracking back, can it be delivered using the technology in theory? Then of course it's actually doing the science in mm-hmm. the labs here at our core and conducting the clinical studies to prove it.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to put insulin on, on a shelf for a minute. Cause I want to get back to that uh, and, and talk a little bit about that, but um sticking with the the platform itself to the degree that you can uh disclose right because it yeah. occurs to me it occurs to me as i'm listening to you talk that uh you know there must be some pretty significant intellectual property and 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 i figured that my original question was pretty naive uh the way that i posed it like hey we want to make your widget better it sounds to me like there are companies coming to aracor to say look we need some we need some help uh with our with our formulation because we want to make this you know, more patient centric. We want to work on administration and you have the technology to perhaps do that. And we don't, we meaning in, in many cases, big pharma. So that sounds to me like a pretty good, pretty good place to be from a, a platform and intellectual property uh, standpoint. Um, so again, to the degree that you can sort of disclose for us, what that platform looks like, how it how it works, uh, you know. And again, I'm not I'm not a scientist. Uh, this is the business of biotech. So we want to stay focused on the on the business angle, but you know, explain some of that science if you can.
1: Yeah, sure. And you're right. It, you know, it is a technology platform that's um, very heavily IP protected. There, we've got 33 patent families. We've got more than 50 granted patents in the major territories like the US. And Europe. And essentially, so when we're working on a product, whether it's a medicine, whether it's one of our own or one of our pharma partners, the first thing we do is to define, you know, what's the target product profile? What enhancements of properties are we looking to achieve? And once we've defined that, either ourselves or with our partner, um, we then use our internal expertise in this area to say, okay, What challenges do we need to overcome? What's preventing, you know, this enhanced profile being achieved today? And once we've identified those challenges, we then select um, effectively tools from our Aristat technology platform. And each tool is a very specific combination of ingredients or excipients that when we combine them with a therapeutic product, we know that they'll enhance a particular property. Now, these are quite complex um, products and complex medicines, so there's always more than one challenge that you need to overcome. And that's where we'll then select the tools from our platform, each of those being a very specific combination of ingredients that will overcome each challenge. So we might pick three tools, for example, so tool one, three, and five. We combine these together in our labs with the product itself, and we test it. We're then looking at when we combine these different ingredients with this therapeutic medicine, do we see broadly in the enhancement of properties that we'd expect to see? And then once we know we're in the right design space, um, we have a um, computational algorithm that we've developed at our core that allows us to fine tune and essentially select the exact ratios of all these ingredients um, that, when combined together with the medicine itself, will give us the most superior enhancement of properties. And it's really using this approach, which is very transferable and scalable, that we can routinely deliver enhanced versions of products that are otherwise unachievable. And each one of these tools, each one of these combinations of excipients is patent protected as well, which, of course, drives our technology licensing business model.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, To to what degree do you, uh, on a day-to-day basis, lean into your development background uh and maybe you know roll your sleeves up and get involved and, and some of this problem solving that you're you're just describing, which elements of the of the platform we need to bring together to uh to to work on this specific formulation. Um, you know, like you said, you I think your degree's in organic chemistry, you started out as a scientist, you spent a lot of time uh working on on developability and and uh and development of of products. So do you, do you find yourself kind of drifting back into, into those roots frequently, or do you kind of try to stay uh, rooted firmly in the in the CEO's office?
1: Yeah, probably a bit of a combination, to be honest. I think, um, you know, where I do get involved is when we're looking at, okay, what's the patient need here? What ultimately are we striving to achieve and why? Because it's important then, it's not just from a, you know, you've got to understand what the patient need is what data would we need to develop to demonstrate that we're meeting that patient need which you know that's that takes quite a lot of farmer experience and we've got depth of experience across the company in that area but also it's got to be commercially viable you know and that's important not just from you know our shareholders perspective and growing the business it's really important for the patients as well because if it's not commercially viable ultimately that enhanced version of the product is not going to make it to market. So it's really important that you combine that assessment both of the patient need, what it's going to take to develop it, and what that's going to cost. And ultimately, you know, once it gets to market, who's going to pay for it? Because, you know, somebody ultimately, whether it be healthcare systems, um, insurers in the US, or, you know, some self pay or co pay from patients, how does that all work? And can you bring then ultimately a product to market that, that gets to patients and give the, give them those improvements? So it's a real combination still of commercial and science There, when it comes to actually designing these formulations using the Aristat technology platform, I leave that to the real experts in the company, which is not me.
0: <laughs> when you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at citiva.com backslash emergingbiotech. That's c y t i v a dot com backslash emerging biotech. Do you um, the, the the commercial aspects that you just mentioned? You know who, who's going to pay? What's that going to look like? You know what's the what's the um, I guess formula uh, for for getting this thing out out, out to market and um, to whatever degree possible? You know com- comfortably in the hands of patients who who need them and affordably. Um, do, do you embrace that? Oh, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an important challenge for the business. And whether you, whether you naturally embrace it or not, you're, yeah, I, I understand that you're going to. But, uh, you know, coming from a science background, has, has that been a difficult adjustment for you or is it an exciting one? I mean, what, what sort of your mindset there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you approach these with a you know, a scientific mindset, which is basically problem-solving, Mindset really, it, it's the same, um, you know, it's the same approach, and you know, it's quite fascinating. I guess that's one way of putting it. You know, there's some interesting nuances on pricing and reimbursement there, and it, it is critical. And I think ultimately, you know, and we talk about this within the company, it might not be everybody's natural place they want to be talking about pricing, reimbursement, or what's the business case, but it's you know we we need to do that because if we want to see which is really the purpose of Aracor is to bring medicines to market that can transform their outcomes if you want to really make that happen it's got to be affordable you know for whoever's paying that it's got to be affordable and I think you know that's a you've got to not fall into that trap of thinking that just Regulatory approval or FDA approval, so the Food and Drug Administration in the US is the end of the journey because it isn't. You can gain approval and still find that your product doesn't make it to a broad set of patients because ultimately, um, you know, you haven't got that business side right around the pricing and reimbursement. So they all have to come together essentially for it to be a product that makes it into the patients. Hands at the end of the day, so and you know, for me, it's you know, it's again, I I like that mix of commercial and science. So you know, you, you see it as a, a challenge and opportunity. I think it's how you got to look at it.
0: Yeah, uh, you since you just brought up uh, regulatory concerns and, and the FDA, I'm I'm curious about that. So for for Aricor, uh, given where it starts on the development, uh, I guess continuum, um, working with a uh, perhaps an approved therapy and 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 moving you know moving to improve it beyond that does that give you a head start on on the regulatory front like where where do you sort of uh, engage regu- regulators and and how does that kind of look compared to perhaps a a per, uh, a, a biopharma company that's producing or developing a drug from from scratch
1: yeah, and that's one of the real advantages of um, our approach and the ourstep technology. As you said, we're using we're taking existing um, medicines that are already on the market, such as insulin, and we're using the technology to develop enhanced versions of these. So this means that the safety and effectiveness of these um, medicines is already known, and most you know novel therapeutic products fail in development due to a safety issue or efficacy, so effectiveness. So that risk essentially is taken off the table. And what we're doing and and what we're looking to achieve is um, improved, enhanced versions of these and and proving that they're superior, proving that they um, enhance outcomes for patients. So when we're looking at designing clinical studies, it's really around demonstrating superiority. So this means that, you know, that development failure risk is lower than a traditional biotech that's developing a novel medicine. And also we can follow abbreviated development and regulatory pathways to market, which means we can develop them much faster and, you know, obviously quicker to patients and to the market at a lower risk. So ultimately a lower cost as well. And I think that's an important an element here that we can bring you know, enhanced products to market that genuinely improve outcomes to patients, but they can be brought to market in an affordable way, which, you know, allows our as a business, of course, to grow, but allows patients and a broad patient base to access these enhanced therapies.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's, let's bring the, the insulin and diabetes conversation back, back on the table real quick. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling in, in my mind right now with how to, how to pose this question up. So, um, you know, I've had conversations on, on this podcast in, in recent months with uh, biologist companies that are exploring new biologic treatments for uh, for diabetes. Um, to, sort of with the intent to to break out of the uh, the the insulin paradigm that we've seen for the past hundred years, right? Like there's got to be something better. We've been treating diabetes with, with insulin for for more than a, more than a hundred years, and it's remained, you know, virtually unchanged. Um, Now, now your company is saying, you know what, like (laughs) on one hand, I I get it. Like, well, that's, that's the, the treatment uh, approach that, that there is that we see that we know there's a market for let's go in there and see if we can do it better uh, versus, you know, let's try to find something altogether different to, to, uh, to affect diabetes. So, so tell us a, a little bit about that. Like, you know, it's got to be daunting to some degree to say, look, you know th- this has been the the treatment reality, the standard of care for a hundred years, and we're going to go in there and, and and try to make it better. Um, what is the opportunity for, I guess, innovation in in insulin treatment for diabetes?
1: Yeah, and it's a good question. You're right. You know, insulin itself has been around for 100 years. I mean, the, that insulin has evolved and developed through to the what they call analog insulins that we have on the market today. So, you know, the major pharmaceutical companies like Nova Nordisk, Eli Lilly and Sanofi, Aventis all have, you know, analog insulins on the market today. And they're much better And those first insulins um, 100 years ago. But what we do know is that there's still room for innovation in insulin. And there's still very much a need for much faster acting insulin. So, you know, as I touched on um, earlier, you know, the daily challenge for someone living with diabetes is to try and manage their blood glucose inside this healthy target range. And when we eat foods, um, our blood glucose rises really rapidly And for an individual without diabetes, insulin is released from their pancreas in tandem to this, so it's physiologic, and maintains your blood glucose within this healthy target range. Now, for people with diabetes, so all type 1 diabetics uh, need to inject insulin to do this, and a proportion of type 2 um, diabetics that are um, insulin-reliant need to do this. So when they eat a meal, Inject insulin to try and control this very swift rise in blood glucose. And the fact is that the current best in class insulins available to them today are still not fast enough acting or more or physiological enough, so not like a healthy person's pancreas, to control this blood glucose quickly enough. So, this means on average, a person with diabetes spends about 25% of their time with their blood glucose too high in hyperglycemia. And about 5% of their time with their blood glucose too low in hypoglycemia. And it's this time spent out of range that leads to the really serious disease complications associated with diabetes. So there's a 200% increase in all-cause morbidity, for example, and 70% of people with diabetes die from cardiovascular disease. And this is a direct result of their blood glucose being out of range. So this is really the challenge that we set ourselves at our to say, okay. so if we could make insulin much faster acting post-injection, so we accelerate its absorption and improve its glucose lowering profile, we can help these patients, um, you know, better manage their glucose and stay inside this healthy range, of course, reducing their disease complications and helping them to stay healthier for longer and keeping them out of that um, hospital setting. So that was really the challenge um, for us, and the, that room for innovation. Even with a, you know, an insulin that's you know been around essentially, you know, the idea of insulin's been around for a hundred years. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. That. That's fascinating. Stay. Stay more. Uh, spend more time in the in the safe zone and avoid some of those other exactly complications. What uh, you know. Yeah. I, I haven't looked at it lately. So I'm curious what the, uh, sort of what the market forecast looks like. I mean, I, I think last I read, um, you know, d- diabetes is, is not going away. In fact, it is, you know, particularly here in the United States, um, I think, you know, the, the, the forecast is that there will be, um, <laughs> I don't I don't know how to put it like more, more diabetics to come. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's yeah. not, uh, it's, it's not an indication that's, that's waning. Um, what does it look like from your perspective?
1: Yeah. I mean, so worldwide there's around 537 million people currently living with diabetes. And as you said, you know, that number is increasing. So for type one diabetes, it's around 10% of um, people with diabetes have type one diabetes. So it's, um, you know, there, it's not related to lifestyle at all and they need, um, insulin from point of diagnosis there to manage their disease. And then the the remaining around 90% is type 2 diabetes. And, you know, that's very much, you know, reaching pandemic levels now. I mean, I think it's fair to say it already is there. And, you know, partly goes hand in hand with the obesity um, pandemic. We um, we ran a um, KOL, so a key opinion leader, webinar last week, actually talking about our concentrated Rapid-acting insulin eighty two seven eight, and um, one of the clinicians and diabetologists on that call talked around in the US. It's um, it's expected that around fifty percent of people in America, so Americans, will be obese by twenty thirty, and that really is going hand in hand and driving up those numbers of people with type two diabetes, and driving up their need for um, insulin as well. So. You know, sadly, it's a it's a perfect storm. There, essentially, we're seeing an increase in the obesity pandemic, which is in turn an increase in type two diabetes. But not only type two diabetes, it's increasing their daily insulin needs that they require to manage that um, disease. So, you know, sadly, we're only seeing that go one way. And I think the International Diabetes Federation, you know, published. These numbers at the end of 2021 there, and they talk about diabetes now being in crisis, you know, just in terms of sheer numbers. But they also um, calculate that it's just under a trillion dollars to treat diabetes and its complications worldwide currently. So there really is this need to help patients improve their outcomes, of course, improve their quality of life. Really decrease the burden both from patients and and healthcare systems there, and better insulins have a role to play. There, a significant role to play.
0: Yeah, um, what's the? I, I, give us a sense for your 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 clinical and regulatory timeline at this point. So, as as you're talking about this uh, unmet need, the the growing unmet need, I'm thinking like where's Ericor in parallel with, uh, with with all that and its ability to step in. Uh, at some point beyond the clinic and, and have an impact. So I guess get, just give us sort of a yeah. where, where you are in the continuum, a pipeline update, if you will.
1: Yeah, sure. So we, we have two insulins in development. So the first is a product called AT247, and this is an ultra-rapid-acting insulin, so very fast-acting. We see this bringing the most benefits for people with type 1 diabetes, and particularly those that are looking to use that next generation into technology. So it has the potential to enable something called the artificial pancreas, which is a system where your um, insulin needs are measured via a sensor. It's fed to an algorithm which calculates how much insulin you need and it's automatically um, delivered by the insulin pump. And these systems really help those people with type 1 diabetes really closely and precisely manage their blood glucose. But they need faster acting insulins to to realize the full benefits and to realize a full um, closed loop artificial pancreas. So for that product, we've completed our first phase one clinical study and we demonstrated that it was much faster acting and superior glucose lowering compared to the gold standard insulins on the market today. And that was in type one diabetic patients. And we're currently in the middle of a um, insulin pump study, because again, we see the most benefit type ones using an insulin pump. And we're um, in the middle of a study there um, looking at 8247, again, against the gold standard insulins on the market today when delivered um, continuously via an insulin pump. So that would be key data for that product if we can demonstrate again that superiority we can show that we've got a, a you know an improved insulin that can really help and people with diabetes better manage um, their condition there mm-hmm. and then our second product is a product called at278 sorry the names aren't very catchy might have to um, think of some uh, different names that are not numbers for them soon and this the, part, is
0: a part of the fun of, uh, a, a, you know, moving towards commercial is coming up with uh, more catchy names than
1: exactly. <laughs> so, this is a you know, a concentrated rapid acting insulin. So, here the challenge is that for people that have high daily needs for insulin, so they need to inject high volumes and high numbers of units of insulin per day. So, primarily type 2 diabetics, as we talked about, as we see that increase in obesity, um, pandemic, we see higher insulin needs. And um, so currently, this patient population have two options available for them today. They can use the gold standard insulins that are on the market, which are fast acting, so give them good glucose control. But they're only available at lower concentrations, so 100 units per mil, and some are available at 200 units per So we've uh, looked at saying, okay, if we can develop a highly concentrated, so five times concentrated insulin, but is also rapid acting, they can, um, you know, essentially have the best of both worlds here. They can have a lower injection volume, fewer injections per day. So that helps, obviously, with compliance and, and the burden of managing the disease. But good blood glucose control, then this would be a much better insulin that patient population there and we have to remember that it's, you know it's a complex disease many of these patients are taking between seven and eleven different prescriptions per day to manage diabetes and all of its complications so the more we can reduce that burden you know compliance improves and outcome improves as well mm-hmm. so there again we've completed our first phase one clinical study this was in type one and um, diabetic patients to demonstrate that we didn't had indeed been able to develop a concentrated but very rapid-acting insulin. So despite it being five times more concentrated, it was um had an equivalent glucose-lowering profile to so that gold standard insulin available on the market today, which is five times less concentrated. So, you know, this has really given us that data to show that we have a market leader position here, the only concentrated and rapid-acting insulin that could be available to patients and we're planning to enter into our next clinical study which will be in type 2 um patient population because again we see the most benefit here for this product for those high insulin users so that's primarily type 2 diabetics Mm
0: -hmm. yeah very good um What's the next uh, the the next big step there at Ericor? So uh, you know, you just walked us through the pipeline uh, and 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 clinical progress, but what uh, what's on the horizon?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for us, obviously, um, for our diabetes and insulin based products, it's to take them through those phases of clinical development to prove that superiority and the patient benefit. Obviously, in parallel to that as well, mapping out and working with. Key opinion leaders, payers, et cetera, to ensure that we generate the data that's needed for that, for reimbursement. And our strategy is to take those products closer to market to a higher value inflection point prior to partnering, either for late phase or for commercialization. I mean, you asked about the market earlier and, you know, these current mealtime insulins, which is the area that we're developing in. Um, you know the sales for those currently are around six point four billion dollars. So we'd we'll be looking to take market share within that existing market and be doing that with a you know a partner that's commercially set up for sales and marketing in such a large um, um, commercial and patient population essentially. But it's not just about diabetes. We also have a portfolio of products within the specialty hospital space. So. Um, This is a space whereby these products, again, are already on the market and in use in the hospital setting, but they're powders that require this complex mixing procedure prior to use. And the challenge with this is that either this mixing procedure has got to be done at point of care by the nurses, or it's done by an external pharmacy and then shipped to the hospital in a ready-to-use format. So this adds complexity to the system and, of course, cost. But most importantly, it, um, it means there's room for errors to be made here, which can lead to dosing errors to patients. So it's core. again, we're using the Arasat technology to develop stable, liquid, ready-to-go versions of these products, essentially. So it's ready to um, be used at point of care, which reduces cost, time for treatment, and also eliminates this risk of there being administration errors to the patient's. And to a certain extent, we've we validated the commercial potential of these products as we've entered into two co-development and licensing deals with Hikma Pharmaceuticals, which were two products that we started to develop at ARACOR and now with Hikma as our partner. And we'll be looking to take those to market in this specialty hospital space. But we also have a pipeline of earlier stage products that are pre-licensed that we're working at on at ARACOR and we'll be looking to enter into more Hikma ideals there so you know it's very much around selecting the right products where there's a patient need a commercial case and an our call for us to develop those through it's a minimum proof of concept generating the ip and for some of those products as we're doing with the diabetes taking them into the clinic mm-hmm. ourselves and i think in doing this you know we can build a large and sustaining biopharmaceutical company ultimately
0: yeah um are those the the specialty hospital uh, therapeutics that you referenced? Uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't think I, I don't think Aracor has, has publicly stated indications there, and I'm not going to ask you to do that. But are they indications perhaps that are as uh, as common and and uh, as big a market as diabetes presents?
1: Yeah. So you know, in those programs, again, it, to a certain extent, it's as with our technology partners, it's agnostic to. Mm-hmm. therapeutic care and indication because it's then around taking these products that um, from powders to ready to go liquids essentially so yes we're working on a broad range of products through to you know some oncology indications as well there which are obviously significant in terms of um, you know their commercial revenues and you know an important point to know is, and partly why we can be agnostic in the specialty hospital sector is because We're not looking to change clinically how these products work post-injection. We can follow an even further abbreviated regulatory and development pathway to market. So we work on the assumption here that limited or no clinical studies will be needed for approval, which means that we can go and look at broader indication bases because we're not looking at doing very large and significant clinical studies like you would see with a, a novel therapeutic product
0: yeah okay a uh, couple more questions and we're, we're running short on time I'll, I'll let you off the hook uh from uh from a, a a manufacturing uh standpoint it would i be correct to assume that you take your uh your technology to a certain point um and then and then move that uh beyond aracor's four walls for manufacturing purposes because i mean you think about an indication like like diabetes as we as as we've ascertained you know we could be looking at significant volumes of, uh, of, of, of your ultra uh, rapid acting insulin. So is that, is that outsource? Is that, is the, is the idea to give that back to the pharmaceutical company where the, you know, it sort of originated for a manufacturing uh, for manufacturing purposes. What's that look like?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that manufacturing um, isn't done in house at, at our core. So we select external contract manufacturing organizations to do that for us and our approach there is very much that we're selecting those um contract manufacturers that you know have the capability and the expertise to manufacture these products for use in patients um for us and also working out how we scale that through to commercial scale because I think that provides then optionality that's If we were to partner, for example, one of our diabetes products, then our partner may want to take that um, manufacturing in-house if they have that capability and capacity, or they may want to partner and take up the supply chain that we've developed there. So it's important there that you have that you know strategy and that it's all part of the pharmaceutical product development strategy, essentially, that you know you don't disrupt the lead time to get to market for either ourselves or a partner there. And you just need to, you know, ultimately the sponsor and responsible for that product. So you need to have very um, clear oversight of your outsourced uh, network.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what haven't I asked you that I should have Dr.
1: Howell? Um, what haven't you asked me?
0: What haven't I asked you that I should have? As you're sitting here listening to my listening to me stumble around my my question <laughs> for you and, and ramble on, uh, there, there, there's got to be something you're thinking, man, you should have asked me that. He's, he's yeah,
1: missed- I mean, I think yeah. for AraCor, you know, what we've touched on really is our, you know, the purpose of the company and why why do people work in a pharmaceutical company? I think there's probably easier ways to make a living there, you know, it's not straightforward. You're looking at cutting-edge science, there's the commercial risk and the development risk that comes with it even with our core, you know, we have a lower risk profile, but we've still got to make the right development and commercial decisions along the way. But I think it's all around you know having the the end patient in mind here and and what get motivates people at AraCor and certainly motivated me through my career is that you know we've got real opportunity here to improve you know patient outcomes and, and quality of life. And I think if you get that right and you bring these products to market, ultimately you'll grow a you know large and successful um self-sustaining business as well. And you know I've seen that you, you mentioned earlier some of my past roles, you know, certainly BTG, it went from a 70 person company to being ultimately then acquired, it was a UK-based company acquired by a US company for i think it's about 4.2 billion in the end and it's really around around that what what are the patient needs how do we get it to market what commercially you know what's it need to look like from a commercial case and you know i think if you've got broad enough pipeline so you're de-risking in that sense as well it's it's something that you know smaller companies like Arupal can grow and achieve essentially
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, how how big is there? Or how many how many employees do you have now?
1: So we're fifty people now. So and that's you know majority scientists working on applying the that technology, which is we do at in house. Then obviously we've got a group managing the you know CMOs and CROs. The clinical studies, of course, are um, external as well. So we have to manage all of that ecosystem. And that smaller number of us uh, looking at the business side and finance, etc., as well. But you know, the majority of PhD scientists, and we're we're based in Cambridge in the UK. So you know, we can bring in some of the very best scientists from Oxford, Cambridge, London. So it's a great location for us for talent.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, I'd love to to spend a couple of days uh, shadowing you, uh, unbeknownst to you, because I, I, I I'm I'm thinking about like the the culture there and your leadership style, and it occurs to me that I'd say the majority of the the biotech CEOs, emerging biotechs, you know, our our core size biotech CEOs, the majority that I interview are probably. Uh, business people, people come from it from VC, or they come from it, you know, from sort of the CFO MBA background. That that would be the majority. Um, a, a smaller number are scientists, turn CEOs like yourself. And I think about it in uh, in terms of my own position here. Like my, my boss did a healthy element of of my job, you know, before he became. My boss, and that's a blessing and a curse, right? Like I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think boy, there there are times I wish my boss was like you know someone someone from the management side who didn't really understand how or how or, why I do what I do or how I do it, just as long as yeah. it works. Um, blessing and a curse, though. But I can I can imagine that if I did shadow you, I'd see a lot of respect there. I mean, there's got to be a lot of respect there because. Uh, you know, you're not asking folks to you. You gave them, you praised them, right? You lauded their ability, the you know their abilities, but you're not asking them to do anything that you haven't uh, done in, in previous roles. And I think that's that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and I think that's key, really, because you you understand you you know you understand the challenges um, within pharmacy school development as well. And and as you said, that, that's a blessing and a curse. I think sometimes they probably wish I'd stop asking questions. Mm. As well, but you know that's part of really kicking the tires isn't it? on the strategy and what, what we're doing here, and and understanding, you know, if there is a bump in the road or a delay or something that needs to be solved, that actually, you know, you can bring some intellectual capital to the table to help um, resolve that, and also understand when really you've got to a point that this is, you know, we've got to the best place. And you know, and the team have, have thought that through and got to the right place. And I, as you said, you've got to trust your team, you've got to have a great team around you, and ensure that you don't become the bottleneck on progress. Essentially, yeah.
0: Well, we're uh, like I said, we're about out of time here, Dr. Howell. But I, I want to thank you for, uh, as I said, subjecting yourself to my rambling questions. <laughs> that uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've learned a ton, uh, both about Ericor and. Uh, diabetes care and treatment and and where it's going from here. And uh, it's great work you're doing. And I wish you well on the path.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: So that's Ericor CEO, Dr. Sarah Howell. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Citiva, which demonstrates its commitment to early stage biopharma companies at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that site out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com, where I'd be thrilled if you'd subscribe to my newsletter. And if you like sitting in on conversations like these, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the player of your choice. Leave us a review. And as always, thank you for listening.